encourage you to stop by and see what's going on. Uh, it's a great evening of ministry to young people, to children and young people in our community, and so we are thankful for the staff who uh, give of their time and their talents and their gifts and skills uh, to serve the Lord in that way. So thanks so much. As you came in, uh, hopefully you got this little survey sheet from my ministry partner, Rocky Porter. He was handing these out. He, you may have missed getting one. If you did, that's okay. There's more out on, in the lobby on the information desk. Uh, this is not a ballot. You are not voting about which version we're going to use in this church. This is more for me, so I know uh, what versions are out there and what uh, you like to use. I've been asked a couple times what version of the Bible that I use, and I use the New American Standard Bible, New American Translation. Prime. It's my primary text, even though I refer to many other versions, uh, including the Greek and the Hebrew. So, uh, like we say, I know, I know a little Greek and I know a little Hebrew. One owns a jewelry store and the other one owns a delicatessen. So, um, uh, anyway, if you would just mark the primary version, this is not the name of a study Bible or like the Ryrie Study Bible or it's a version and you have to probably look at the front page to see which version you have. And then whether or not you use paper or electronic, if you use your smartphone or your tablet, you probably have 10 or 12 different versions and you can pick and choose, but which is the one that you prefer? And this is more for my information, for the elders, so we know. And this is anonymous, by the way. You don't have to put your name on it. And uh, we will uh, just, out of interest, see what versions are being used. And they're in no particular order, by the way. Uh, so there's no secret handshake going on here. And uh, we are looking forward to that. So anyway, if you would do that, and I'll have them available next week also. We won't drag it out more than that. And uh, then, uh, depending on the results, I may tell you what the results are. Yes, I probably will. So anyway, for our information and edification, uh, how good at you are telling a counterfeit from the real authentic item? You know, our market, the global market, is awash in counterfeit products. In fact, I was reading a white paper uh, by Park Place Economist, which cites a number of uh, congressional hearings on the problem of counterfeits in the world in the world's marketplace today, and here's some figures coming out of these congressional hearings. Uh, and I'm reading from this white paper: counterfeits are not only available in black markets where law-abiding consumers would never find them, or from seedy merchants at shady seat, sheet, uh, street corners. They have been found in almost every type of legitimate retail location, including large-chain department stores, hotel gift shops, upscale boutiques, swap meets, and flea markets. That's from a congressional hearing. For instance, here's an instance. In one case, a customer who had unknowingly bought counterfeit and ineffective pharmaceuticals purchased her drugs at one of the largest and most reliable pharmacies in St. Louis. Uh, moreover, the problem appears to be getting worse, and the, the International Trade Commission estimates losses from counterfeiting uh, at one point were $5.5 billion globally. Six le years later, the losses were estimated at $60 billion, and then eight years after that, which would be in uh, the 2010s, the United States economy alone was damaged to an estimated $200 billion. 
Uh, my first exposure that I knowingly was exposed to counterfeit item was when we were moving from Montana to Dallas to go to graduate school, and we spent the night in Amarillo. One of the fond memories my wife has is Amarillo, Texas, and uh, that's a story for another time. She'll probably tell you, and she'll probably embellish the story also, I would imagine. But anyway, uh, we got there late, spent a night in a kind of a seedy motel on the, on the main freeway, east-west freeway. And early in the morning, I was up before everybody and I went out. We were driving a rental truck with all our worldly possessions, pulling our car with a, a hitch behind, you know, a tow bar. And I went out to check all of that. And as I was walking across the parking lot, a really snazzy Cadillac convertible pulled up beside me with two guys dressed, you know, in the silk shirts and the gold chains kind of deal. And they said, hey, buddy. They were very nice. They called me buddy. Hey, buddy. <laughs> and, of course, I'm, a, I'm this rube from Montana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, what do you got? And, uh, they, hey, you want to buy a Rolex watch? I said, and I knew about Rolex watches, and I said, sure, I like Rolex watches. It, 200 bucks. And, of course, I knew they were upwards of $10,000 for a Rolex watch, and they had it there, and it was really flashy and really nice. And, and uh, I, 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 I kindly, I hope I was winsome with them, begged off, because they were really big guys, and they looked kind of tough. And uh, they went on their way, but that was my first exposure. And, it was nothing that was going to hurt me personally. If I would have bought the thing, it would have turned my wrist green, I'm sure, because it wasn't real gold. Uh, and then another example is when we were in Indonesia, uh, in Pontianak on the island of Borneo. In all the shops there, we would walk around and you would find brand name golf clubs, all sorts of you know very fancy high-end watches for very, very cheap. And we knew those were all counterfeit. They were all counterfeit. In fact, I did buy Don some really... Nice perfume, you know, world-famous perfume. I thought, what a deal this is. And uh, I don't know if she even still has it, but we opened the lid when we got back to the States, and you wouldn't want to wear that perfume. It was awful. It was probably dangerous, uh, you know, actually. Uh, but as this uh, white paper went on to report, it talked about the outrage of counterfeit things. And uh, the things I was exposed to knowingly probably wouldn't have harmed me. I would just been a waste of my money uh, in that sense. But uh, there are serious applications here. Pfizer, we all know all about Pfizer, the New York-based pharmaceutical company. They manufacture an inflammatory drug called Ponstan. They discovered that its product had been the target of Colombian counterfeiters who sought to illegally profit off of the intellectual property of several successful American corporations. These counterfeiters had set up shop in several dilapidated houses in a poor neighborhood in Bogota, where they produced counterfeit Ponston tablets in a non-sterile environment. The pills they manufactured were nearly indistinguishable from the genuine product, yet contained little more than boric acid, floor wax, and yellow highway paint which all of those materials, if you ingest them, are highly toxic to human beings. Uh, the, in 1999, the FDA issued a warning regarding counterfeit cans of infant formula, which would cause fever, skin rashes, and severe allergic reactions. And there's just, if you Google uh, counterfeit stories, you will find amazing stories. Uh, the, the big one in this white paper is a woman who was taking a drug to help her with her chemotherapy so she could continue on with enough energy to get her chemotherapy. And they were unknown to her or her pharmacy, 
a major pharmacy, uh, she was taking counterfeit drugs, which did not help her at all. It was, uh, were not helping, and eventually she did die, and the congressional hearings uh, dealt with that. But the counterfeit and the authentic, and this is where we come to something that is more dangerous, uh, more, has more ramifications when we come to Scripture, we come to Galatians, the book of Galatians, and of course the Apostle Paul is warning the Galatian believers, the churches in Galatia, about the fact that <clears throat> there is a desperate situation. They are counterfeiters out there of the spiritual truth. They are presenting something as the gospel fact, when in reality it is a false gospel. It is a gospel that has ramifications which determine people's eternal destiny, their eternal well-being. Galatians was written to remedy this desperate situation, to call these early Christians back from the Mosaic law to grace, from legalism to faith. It is an emphatic statement of salvation by faith apart from works and is, a rel is as relevant today as when it was originally penned. And so today, if you take your copy of Scripture or your tablet or your smartphone and turn to Galatians chapter 1, the passage that Dave read for us this morning, we will begin our study in the book of Galatians. Last week, we did a brief introduction. In fact, on the back of your bulletin insert, if you use those inserts, is a chart on Galatians, which will help you put the big chunks together that we talked about last week and will perhaps will help you get a grip of the structure of the book of Galatians. So I uh, commend that to you in your own personal study of the book of Galatians as we go along through here. But uh, it is very easy for us to accept what is counterfeit. And the Apostle Paul is writing to these believers in Galatia and he's warning them that they are going the wrong way. They are believing the false teachers who have inter, entered the church, those churches there. And the, the then-known world was full of these false teachers. They were from Jewish origins who were saying, yes, believe in Jesus for eternal well-being, but yet you must add the Mosaic Law. Essentially, they were saying you must become Jewish before you can become a Christian. And the issue, of course, one of the main issues was circumcision, but it was man's works they were adding to the gospel message of saved by grace alone. And so this morning we start this study in the book of Galatians. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy. We thank you for the fact that we are accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus Christ has done, not because of what we have done. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Apostle Paul, for his defense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we be attentive to your word. May we be a people of your word and of prayer. And Lord, may uh, this passage today impact all of us as we sit under the teaching of your Holy Spirit through your word today. And thank you that you are with us here today, Lord. You never leave us or forsake us. You are the, the object of our worship. You've given us the gospel message in clear form, and it's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen and amen. The Apostle Paul was very concerned about these counterfeiters, and uh, he is writing to them. He begins the letter like most first century letters by identifying himself as the writer. And if you compare all the introductions of all of Paul's letters, you'll see many similarities, although Galatians stands out as quite unique in his beginning. He begins in verse 1, identifying himself as Paul, an apostle. 
And this is an important item that he is discussing because he is setting forth his authority, his authority. An apostle was one who had authority from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He had authority in being an apostle. Now, in Scripture, we see the word or the term apostle used in two different ways. There is a technical usage, which means the 11 that were identified as apostles with Matthias in Acts chapter 1, the 12 then who were apostles, and then Paul was added later. They are technically the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the usage there. There are other apostles mentioned. An apostle simply means one that is sent forth uh, with a right to speak as a representative or a delegate of God, a delegate of God. That is a general generic definition of that Greek word that we translate apostle. But uh, the technical sense of this word, and this is what Paul is emphasizing here, is he had to be specifically selected and called by Jesus Christ who gave him that authority. We see that in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 26. An apostle had to literally see the risen Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22, this was the one who authenticated their role. Though that, so in a technical sense, apostles do not exist today. The last apostle was the apostle John who died in the 90s, uh, in the 90 AD. He was the last technical apostle. He was the one who had the authority. And the apostle Paul had the authority to found the Galatian churches. Notice in verse 1, he says an apostle. Then in some of your translations or versions, you may have a parenthetical statement, you know, surrounded by parentheses where he says, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him up from the dead. He sources his authority not in uh, the Jerusalem council, not in the elders in Antioch of Syria, not in any other person, not in Barnabas, not in Timothy, not in anybody else. He's saying, I have this authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. Evidently, the false teachers were attacking his character and his status and then attacking his message of the gospel. And so he has to defend his apostleship, his authority right off the bat. And he says, also, and all the brethren who are with me. He's writing probably from Antioch of Syria, which, if you look on your Bible maps, is near the corner of the Mediterranean Sea uh, to, the, to, the, to the east there on the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, Paul tells them uh, that uh, he is writing to them. He says, to the churches of Galatia at the end of verse 2. To the churches of Galatia. And this, in a little bit of background information, if you've read commentaries or different teaching on the book of Galatians, you know that there's a little bit of a controversy about who these Galatians were. There's two basic theories, the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. And the North Galatian theory was held for uh, many centuries until Sir Walter, uh, excuse me, uh, Sir William Ramsey proposed a South Galatian theory. And what this all boils down to is basically uh, we don't have the historical evidence that Paul was writing to anybody in North Galatia, which is Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. In the central part of the northern part of that Asia Minor, there were people from Western Europe, the Gauls, and they had migrated there after being persecuted. They migrated through Italy and Greece before the time of Christ, and it was an ethnic region, and so it was known as Galatia, which comes from Galatus, or the Gauls, the people. So it was an ethnic region, and not a political region. 
And so some would say that this is the, the Galatia that Paul was writing to. And yet in 25 BC, the Romans conquered all of that, and they converted uh, the, the old Galatia, the northern part, and added a southern part and called it a province of Galatia. So that was a geopolitical territory. And it included the cities, the south part of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. If you're familiar with those cities, you know they were planted by the Apostle Paul during his first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And so the Apostle Paul planted these churches, but there's no record of him planting churches in North Galatia. And so that's one of the reasons that we favor the South Galatian theory of the recipients of this letter. Uh, some other reasons that we favor that, that position, or that I do, is that the main roads from the Apostle Paul's hometown of Tarsus pass directly through the cities of the south and not into the north. There was the barrier of the mountains to the north. Uh, the false teachers were not likely to bypass the southern cities for the northern cities. Thirdly, a large Jewish population could be easily addressed by the false teachers who, because they lived in these southern cities. Uh, fourthly, representatives of South Galatia accompanied the offering of the poor in Jerusalem, but none were from the north in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Uh, Barnabas, who is mentioned but not introduced in Galatians 2, 1, 9, and 13, would not have been known by the believers in the northern city since he only traveled with Paul on the first missionary journey. And so that reason and many others, uh, we date uh, the book of Galatians to about 48 or 49 A.D., one of the earliest writings of the Apostle Paul. And he had been uh, away from these cities, these churches he'd planted for some six to eight years. And uh, this uh, epistle was written from Antioch of Syria, about 48, as I've said. So it's written to remedy a very desperate situation. You can imagine the Apostle Paul, who, is, who has planted these churches, he gets reports of them, and he finds out that they are uh, leaving the gospel that he taught them. And so in chapter 1 to the churches in Galatians, verse 2, and then he gives this greeting in verse 3. This is uh, Paul's message here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. This is a typical greeting by the Apostle Paul of grace and peace. He talks about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the reason that we can have grace and peace. It's the result of the gospel. The price, he notices, you notice here, is that it's Christ's death on the cross. He emphasizes the sacrifice of Christ to redeem us. This is the basic gospel of grace. It is not anything we've done. It's what Jesus Christ has done. The purpose is the object of Christ's death, emphasizing the deliverance that is provided through God by the Lord Jesus Christ. The plan is the orig origin of Christ's death, emphasizing that it is rooted in God the Father's plan, and the point is that God has provided completely for our salvation. And uh, this is the point he's making. Paul declared the basis of salvation lies solely on the work of Christ and not in any human works. In verse 5, we see the motive why Paul is writing, to whom be the glory forevermore, amen. Everything he did was for the glory of God, and he's writing to give glory to God. And so this source of authority is established in these three thrusts, his ministry, his message, and his motive as he begins this letter to these churches who are drifting away from the true doctrine 
of salvation by grace through faith. And then there's a subject of amazement or a a surprise on the Apostle Paul. He jumps in with both feet. Notice verse 6, I am amazed (laughs) that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. There was desertion for this different gospel. He's amazed, which means wondered. He marvels. He can't hardly believe that it would be true of this quickness of deserting the gospel of Christ for a different gospel. We think of famous deserters in our own history. We think of Benedict Arnold. His name is synonymous with a traitor, with a a deserter. Benedict Arnold, remember, was a Continental Army general and a traitor. In August 1780, he and his young wife, Peggy, plotted with the British to hand over the strategic fort of West Point and some 3,000 Continental troops. His motives were not political. They were simply personal for greed, self-aggrandizement. Those things had gripped his heart. The plot was uncovered, and Arnold fled to the British command General Clinton in New York City, and Arnold believed he would receive, be received with open arms and be given a major command in the British Army, but they did not trust him, <laughs> some surprise. Since that time, his name has been synonymous with betrayal and, re- and treason. And so you think of the Galatian believers, they are deserting, that is a military term here, they are deserting for a different gospel. And then there is a distortion of the gospel, Verse 7, which is really not another, for there are some who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. They are adding man's works into becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is with us today, believe me, all over the place. In the reading, in TV, in radio preaching, I hear it all the time. It's gained resurgence in our time and in our day. Salvation by grace is at a low level. Paul is contrasting the good news of Christ uh, that the, and what the Galatians are embracing. In verses 6 and 7, he uses two different Greek words. He uses the word heteros and allos. Uh, one means uh, a different kind, another a different of the same kind. That's allos. Heteros means another of, the di- of a different kind. And so the Galatians are turning to a different gospel, and it's not really a gospel at all. It's so different, it doesn't even apply here. It's not orthodox. It's heterodoxy is what it's called, a different one. It's not the straight orthodoxy of the true gospel. And it's not found in the law, but it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he admonishes them in uh, verses 8 through 10. But even if we, and he gives this hypothetical scenario, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Then he repeats this emphasis again, as we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you another gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. The scathing admonition is a denunciation of the false teachers of this different gospel. He's saying that even if he were to come and preach a different gospel from what they learned, what they heard before, or even an angel from heaven would preach a different one, they are to be anathema. No man can preach a contrary gospel. And believe me, we have plenty of false teachers in this country and around the world with us today. The Greek word that Paul uses here, where in my translation it's accursed, is anathema. 
you may have heard that term anathema. It's really a Greek, Greek term that's not translated into English other than by accursed and some other synonymous terms. But it means accursed damnation with the idea of going to hell. This is really, really serious. A scholar from another century says, the essential idea of this noun is devoted to destruction, something given up to death on account of God. That's the regular meaning of this word anathema in the New Testament. Some over the years have tried to weaken this term, the force of this term in the sense of excommunication from the church. That's maybe how you've heard it before. But there's an objection to this. The word denotes not punishment attended as discipline, but a being given over or devotion to divine condemnation. This is serious stuff. The Apostle Paul is serious about the gospel. In other words, in the New Testament, it has always had the idea of a, of a curse attached to it, as it did in the secular Greek of that time. Donald Guthrie, a contemporary commentator, says it implies the disapproval of God. Indeed, anathema is the strongest possible contrast to God's grace. The essence of the gospel was at stake, as it seems to be almost in every generation of church history. If the false teachers were directly contradicting the gospel of grace of Christ, they could not possibly avoid incurring the strong displeasure of Christ. And so he makes this double-edged sword come out. They are accursed. They are accursed. No matter who says that, that is a contrary gospel. In verse 10, there's nonconformity in a conformist world. That's the challenge all of us face is, am I a man-pleaser or am I a God-pleaser? That is a question that has to be answered early on in your Christian life or you will have nothing but struggles and problems that come afterwards. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He's basically saying that if I wanted to please men, I would have remained as a Pharisee. I was pleasing all sorts of people in my, in my nation at that time. Pleasing man versus pleasing God. Being a man pleaser exalts self. Being a God pleaser exalts God. doesn't mean that we're angry and awful with people. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, when something as serious as the gospel is at stake, we better be pleasing God. A great deal is at stake for lost people. When the gospel message is corrupted, the way of salvation is confused, and people are in danger of being eternally lost. I think I said last week that in, in all my years in pastoral ministry, I've identified Two major corruptions in people's thinking when there are problems in their personal life and their family life and in their church when it erupts in a local church. And that is a misunderstanding of the gospel of grace by faith. A misunderstanding and a confusion over being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not of their works. The other one is the misunderstanding of the bride of Christ, of this thing we call the church and how God has designed it to function. It's impossible to be a man-pleaser and a God-pleaser at the same time. A man-pleaser cannot present the gospel, and a bondservant must preach the gospel. I heard a story about a man who had lost his keys, and uh, he was outside looking under a streetlight. It was at night, 
And if the neighbor saw him out there under the street light looking around on the ground and said, I'll go help him. And he went out, and after some minutes, he said, uh, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my keys. I lost my keys. He said, uh, exactly where did you drop your keys? Do you remember? <laughs> well, of course, if he would have, yeah. But uh, the man said, I, I mislaid him someplace in my house. In your house? Well, why are you out here in the street under the street light looking around here? He said, because the light is better out here. <laughs> you know, and there's a principle there that we never find what we're looking for unless we're looking in the right place. People around us, as Wes mentioned, there are all sorts of people in each one of our arenas of influence and our motions through life, our movements through this community and other communities through our week who are looking for spiritual life. And they're looking like this confused man in all the wrong places. Originally, the Galatians knew where to find the key of salvation. And now they were confused. They began listening to these false teachers, these legalists who said they needed both the keys of faith and the keys of good works, the law, to be saved. Confused, the Galatians were looking for the key to salvation and Christian maturity in the wrong place. Sadly, today, many people are in that same boat looking in the wrong place for the key that would give them eternal life through relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we need to recognize, we need to be clear on the gospel of grace. We need to make sure we understand that we're saved by grace through faith alone and nothing that we do. Each day we spend time with friends and coworkers and classmates and perhaps family that we rub shoulders with and we talk to people around our, our community here as we go to church. We're in a missionary field. Uh, this is not a fortress. Uh, this is a place where we gather and fellowship, but then we are uh, spread out throughout the community. Wherever you find yourself, that's your arena of influence and your place of ministry and your place of worship. Do we have a passion to see people delivered from the emptiness of legalistic thinking, of wrong thinking about what the gospel is, this good news of Jesus Christ? And are we endeavoring to put the key of salvation in others' hands so that they can understand what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a future in heaven. It's as much of a challenge to myself as it is to you, that everybody I see is a divine appointment if I have opportunities to visit with them and talk with them. The Apostle Paul, in very strong language, jumps in with both feet right away, and he's going to spend the rest of the letter First, the next uh, chapter, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, defending his apostleship. Chapters 3 and 4, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And chapters 5 and 6, the application of that doctrine into the Christian life. And it has many ramifications for you and I. Let us pray. O oh Lord, without Paul's boldness, the purity of your gospel...